So Tim, we've had a few weeks off and quite a bit of change going on here at Behavioral Groups. Well, that is the <laughs> understatement of the year. <laughs> yeah, that might be. That might be. So so why don't we fill in the listeners on what has been going on? Not that anybody really cares, <laughs> but just in case, just in case, Tim, that if we have that one listener who's out there is wondering where, what's going on with these guys, where they've been, what's what's happening, man? What one listener? Maybe, maybe two okay, listeners. All right, we care. maybe maybe two, maybe two <laughs> listeners who might care. All right, but yes, we have a lot going on, and the biggest change is that I've moved from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Kurt you currently I still live, do. Yep. to Charlotte, North Carolina, and have taken a full time position as the enterprise director of behavioral science at Truist Bank. And, and Truist, by the way, is the sixth largest bank in the United States. Okay, now that is a pretty big change. Got a big fancy yeah. title. You moved halfway around <laughs> the country. But what we want to let the listeners know is that even though Tim and I are not in the same city anymore, we are still going to be producing this show, Behavioral Grooves. Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, because of the move, we are more focused on making sure that every episode delivers even better insights to understanding why we do what we do. Mm, that's that's true, true. And additionally, and probably what could be considered a very ironic manner, our production <laughs> and research associate, Mary just moved from Nottingham, England to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Tim and I used to live, but now only Together. I yeah. live there because Tim moved. I know, God. And as fate would have it, I literally moved just in time to miss Mary's <laughs> arrival. Oh, and and I'm sure she didn't take that personally, Tim. Well, I don't know. Maybe she took it oh, a little bit personally. No. I don't know. Maybe you're no. moving away. Mary's moving here. No. There you go. I want to assure you and assure Mary and assure all of our listeners, it wasn't personal. <laughs> I, okay. I was really looking forward to being in the same town as Mary and her family. Okay. Fair enough. And and with Mary now stateside, some of the back-end stuff will be easier for us to handle, although we won't have the time zone differences that we can utilize to make sure that we're being 24-7 all around the world. Yeah, yeah, true. But overall, we are super excited about Mary's move Yes, too. yes. So to reiterate, we are still going to be striving to give you, our listeners, the best podcast possible to help you understand how to apply behavior science to your life, keeping it fun and insightful in a way that will hopefully make you laugh as you learn. Agreed. So, okay, let's start with this episode. <laughs> all right. So with all the changes going on, we thought we'd go back to something familiar, something comfortable, something that mm. we knew would bring joy and fun to our listeners. Yeah. So we turned to our friend, John Barge, <laughs> right? Yeah, he's uh, comfortable and fun and insightful. There you go. Right. Well, in part because we wanted to take a deeper look into priming and we also just like hanging out with John. So, you know, so what's interesting is that we actually recorded two different episodes with him. The one that you're going to hear right now and one that we're going to use some snippets for a groove track. You know about those, don't you? Groove tracks? Yes. Just as a reminder, groove tracks are those uh, short, deep dives into a single study or topic. Okay. Okay. And like I said, the other is this episode, which is a foray into the world of priming and the larger picture of where it fits into the world of behavioral science today. And for those of you who may not know, John Barge is a researcher and professor at Yale University 
and is probably the leading researcher on behavioral priming and has been studying this topic for 40 plus years. Man. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fantastic. So we explore with him both the past and the future of priming, as well as some of the controversies surrounding it. So without further ado, grab a large draft of primordial priming brew and sit back and enjoy our conversation with John Barr. John Barge, welcome to Behavioral Grooves again. Hey, Kurt, Tim. <laughs> We're going to get started with the speed we, round as we always do. Kurt, take it away. All right. So we always tend to start with a drink question with you. We've talked to you about coffee and tea before. We've asked Coke and Pepsi. So I can't break the pattern here. Beer or wine? Oh, my God. How, <laughs> how cruel. Cruel to make someone choose between them. It's oh a preference. God. It's just a preference. It's not a all or nothing. Oh it's just a. Oh my God. We're talking the best, right? The best of <laughs> either one, right? Okay. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. okay, wine. <laughs> oh my God. All the years I spent in Germany, you know, with the beer gardens and the, and the Andex yeah. monastery outside of Munich and the fresh. Oh my <sighs> God, that beer. The best beer in the world and the Belgian beer. I mean, the stuff. Oh my God. The, oh my God. Well, and, and of course, it's going to depend. It's going to depend on is it with a nice fine dinner? Is it out with yeah. your friend? I mean, context is going to make a big difference context on where everything. you prefer. Yeah. Context yeah. is everything. It really is. Yeah. 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 Okay. So this this too might be context dependent. Which was your preference, Monet or Michelangelo? Monet. Hmm. Monet. Great. I mean, as a painter, I mean, yeah. Sistine Chapel is like hokey. You look at that stuff, you know, God's head, look at this. Like, you know, okay, you know, I could, you know, I can see high school kids doing that kind of stuff. But like Monet, oh my God. Monet is a genius. You know, Michelangelo did a lot of great things, but his paintings, would you really want to look at that all the time? I mean, I don't know. That's why they put it on the ceiling. You know, the Pope said, oh my God, put that up there where no one looks at it. Okay, okay. University of Michigan or Yale, which football team do you have to root for this fall? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, Michigan, of course, but um, (laughs) I love Yale. You know, the thing about Yale is going away, isn't it? I know this is not what your program is about, but what's happening to college football and college sports is just being bought out by Disney and bought out by the Fox. And and it's, it's just turning into this TV program for the lowest common denominator. And people who are serious fans are just... I mean, it's tragic, you know, what's yeah. happening with college football. And it's a shame. It's a shame. Let's hope there's always an Ivy League. You know, there's always uh, those kinds of, of more small college kind of college football and high school football and things like that, you know, because those are those games are really fun. And, and Yale, Harvard, Yale football will always be fun and probably much more watchable than semi-pro um, kind of things that they have now. Yeah. You know, we can hope. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd rather go to a Yale game. Although, no? you know, I, I don't know if I want to say that because going to a Michigan football game with 110,000 people is an awesome experience. I was going to say. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The Ohio State game last year was, it was last year, was just unbelievable. It was, I wasn't there, but I know people who were, but I watched the whole thing and I can, I have been there for games and it is an just awesome, a spine tingling experience. <laughs> okay, last speed round question. John, has priming gotten a bad rap? <laughs> <Speed> rap. 
you know, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. well. It's the only one I can, that, you didn't give me a choice, though. Well, <laughs> that, that wasn't it's a, a yes, it's that. A it yes, was a no. yes, no. Yes, no question. Oh, I should have just said yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, so why? Why, why, has, why has priming gotten a bad rap? Well, you know, it's an easy, it's, these are easy studies to do. So the easy studies are the low-hanging fruit that uh, people who wanted to, you know, replicate with, with lots of different studies all over the place, they tend to choose the easy studies. They don't tend to choose the longitudinal ones you have to collect data for years and years. They don't collect the ones that are really complicated. They never use the, uh, uh, use the ones that have special equipment because mm. they can't get the special equipment. Uh, into all these labs. So they, use, they tend to use the simple ones. And there's a reason why we originally, other people, tried to, to show simple effects because we're talking about the real world and we're trying to show that these effects matter to people in their daily lives. So we're trying to use mundane, simple things and simple, simple kinds of occasions and not have it be some complicated uh, setup in a lab with all these different things going on that are very artificial and don't relate to real life. So we're trying to find things, you know, that's like, I think that's what the, the physical sensation researchers were really trying to do is say, look, there's this basic aspect aspects of your, your basic perceptual sensory experiences all the time. You see things up and you see, you see things down. You see things far and you see things close. You touch things that are warm or hard or rough or soft and, and, uh, and cold or whatever it is. These are your basic experiences in life. And, and how do they affect your psychology? How do they affect your interpersonal relations and vice versa? I mean, that's real life and mundane. And, and that's what we were after. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they're simple, but then oh no, you know, uh, uh, psychology is is much more complicated than that. It's much complex. You can't reduce it. You're making fun of psychology by saying things are this simple. Well, we weren't trying to make fun of psychology and say things are simple. I actually think things are very complex, and that's why I'm a social psychologist because we study things in their complexity. We study how a person's motivations and feelings and emotions and history. And recent experiences and all of those things matter to how they make judgments and how they decide what to do and all of that. The, the, the very rich context, which is really the home of social psychology. Yeah. You know, these are contaminating variables in cognitive psychology. Howard Gardner and others have said, we don't want affect. We don't want motivation because they're contaminants to pure cognition. Well, fine. But we <laughs> want them because that's real life. And, and the, working on this book, William James, George Miller Henri Bergson and modern versions of them all talk about how the richness of the stream of consciousness and the stream of thought and the extended present. Uh, Gerald Edelman, the Nobel Prize winner with his, his idea of the uh, remembered present, the idea that all these things are brought to bear in your experience, your, your past, your recent, all these things are active. And, and it's the context and that's rich, rich milieu and mix that you use uh, to make judgments, they all matter. And your individual history matters. All, this, all these things matter. And, and they're not contaminants. They're not confounds. They're the real thing. You know? They're part of the William real world. James starts out principle of psychology. And I'll shut up in a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> William James starts out principle of psychology with one sentence. Psychology is the science of mental life. Then he goes on to say, then mental life is, is driven by what your purposes are and what you're trying to do in the moment. Those are the first two sentences of principles. And it and, and goes on from there. The simultaneity of it. That's what Bergson was talking about. It's not, you can't talk about causal change because this and then this and then this and this. It's all happening at the same time. It's simultaneous, not sequential. And this is the 1880s, the same time James was writing his book in the 1880s. It took, each took 10 years. 
Bergson was writing also his book on time and free will in the night in the 1880s. His dissertation, believe it or not, took him 10 years, took James 10 years to write these books. They were writing at the same time. They're saying pretty much the same thing. It's it's remarkable. And they got to meet each other and and uh, and, and a lot in, in Paris uh, later in James's life, just before he, he passed away, he got to, to meet Bergson in Paris. This is the kind of stuff I'm reading about, this kind of stuff I'm writing about. But the point is, this is priming. Priming is all about real life. Priming is all about what happens and how it carries over in residual. Is it the only cause? No, my God, it's one of all these other ones. It's the rich complexity of all these other ones. And so people think, oh, you just press a button, the priming causes everybody to do something. Like a button you're pressing, like the old SR idea. And it's not. It increases the probability that something will happen. Just like smoking increases the probability of getting lung cancer. It doesn't cause it by itself. It's not a, you smoke, you get lung cancer. No, it increases the probability. There's many other factors. The same thing with priming. How would you define a prime for our listeners? I mean, if they are going into this and saying, don't have any clue as to what a prime and what we're talking about, how do you define a prime? Priming is just the, it's the residual effect of a, of a recent experience of uh, which you're not focused on, maybe intentionally focused on, and it's an effect that you're not aware of, of how it's affecting you. So it's it's not something like uh, talking to you guys right now is, is not priming because I'm meaning to do it. I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and trying to answer your questions. All that's very conscious and intentional, and it's not a passive experience. What happens with priming is that you have lots of experiences all the time and all these things that are active because of them get spread around. And one thing I'm really relating to when I'm writing this book is this global workspace theory, right? I'm trying to focus on what, what's going on with consciousness that's helping produce these effects. And what I'm finding out is consciousness is really necessary. And, and here's one of my little, hopefully, zinger kind of statements for the, for the new book is that the primary source of, of unconscious priming type effects is your conscious experience. It's your conscious life that produces the unconscious. Because what happens with conscious experience is you bring everything together, you integrate it. It gives the, the richness of meaning, which is what Ann Treisman was talking about. That it's, consciousness integrates things. And then Bernard Bars and other people with global workspace theories, then the result of that integration gets spread out to all processes in the mind that might be relevant for it. And so it, it shares the information. It communicates. It's like telling, like I'm talking to you guys. It's going out to your listeners and, and your viewers. We're sharing information here. That's a, like a, a social version of what goes on in everyone's mind. When you have a conscious thought or a conscious experience, it gets spread to all these other units. So what happens with priming is you're reading words. Well, those words consciously experienced then get shared by uh, systems of, of premotor cortex and other places that increase the chances you'll behave that way or use it in other ways. And I was really puzzled by this. I wrote a European Journal of Social Psychology article in 2006 called What Have We Been Priming All These Years? Because the same priming manipulations we used to use for impression formation, you use them, you also got behavioral effects. You also got all these other effects. Well, wait a minute. That means all those effects were put in motion back when we were just setting impressions. It just whatever dependent variable we put up to catch them changed. But the effects were always there for everybody. Just we caught one here. We caught one there. I couldn't understand it. I thought they were all in this in a, in a concept had all these behavioral, judgmental, affective, you know, all these kinds of cognitive, all these kinds of things in a single concept, which is hard to understand how that could happen. And it probably doesn't because I wasn't thinking along the lines of global workspace theory. In other words, consciousness is necessary to produce these residual priming effects. They don't happen really subliminally. That's that's 
features and, and not integrated, not rich. The richness and, and the per pervasiveness of priming comes from your conscious experience and the global workspace and sharing it to all these other systems. So when you read words or you see a person acting a certain way, it affects your behavioral system. It affects your judgmental systems and all these things. It follows right out of global workspace theory, which is about conscious thought and about conscious experience. So where do you think priming needs to go then? Is the research on priming, it's evolving, right? It's not static. What directions do you think it could or should even be headed? Yeah, see, there's try to keep these different answers straight. One, we, we really started out with priming as a method. Back in the 80s, it was just a method to simulate a person's personality or chronic state. So back then, if a person was an introvert or extrovert or whatever the, the personality characteristic was, well, you selected them on a personality scale. And you select, so you bring in these people with already existing differences. And you couldn't, it was a correlational study because you couldn't tell what about their personality or their, their mental makeup because they were rated themselves as an introvert, what in particular was causing them to behave differently than the other group. And there, it was a correlational study. Well, how... How do we study then experimentally these personality kinds of differences, individual differences? And we were looking at individual differences in, um, in perceptual sets. Uh, George Kelly at Ohio State, who was Walter Michelle's advisor, Ohio State in the 50s, had this idea that people have different sensitivities to different kinds of social behavior. And that's why you come with different impressions of people, because you have different things you're looking for than the person next to you. Okay, so those individual differences. What we did was use priming to show that if you temporarily make these concepts activated, a person behaves as if they're chronic. In other words, temporarily, they'll act like a person who characteristically or chronically thinks that way. So we can experimentally manipulate. We actually put those two things together in studies back in the 80s. This is Tori Higgins and I working on a model of accessibility, which included long-term chronic differences as well as uh, temporary priming type differences. So it was really a method. Where that method is really caught on is in cultural psychology. If you look at Daphna Oyserman at Southern Cal or Dove Cohen at Illinois and Shinobu Kiriyama at Michigan, they all use priming in their studies of cultural differences because you could, it's the same problem, right? You say, oh, Japanese people do this and, and American people do that. Well, what is it about? What is it about being Japanese or American, right? What in particular is the difference that causes them to look at the world differently or have these different responses? You don't know unless you use priming. And when you use priming, you can, you can actually sometimes show, you can make an American respond like a Japanese and vice versa if you prime them with the key concept or construct, the difference that you think is different between the two. And that's what Daphna Oyserman, Spike Lee, and all these cultural researchers are doing. They're using priming to experimentally manipulate the key construct that they think differs between those cultures. And then they, they get the same result as when they, they have the, you know, the people from Japan or America or whatever it is just come in the lab without any priming, right? They recreate the individual differences. So that, that's the benefit of priming, and it's been used by cultural – it's really a – it's used in cultural psychology all the time. And it still will be because of its, it, it, it gets this great power to be able to pinpoint the actual differences between cultures that produces these big effects. Uh, you could use it in, in any kind of situation where you've got individual difference and you want to get away, you want to supplement. You don't want to replace the individual difference research. You want to supplement with experimental to get a convergent evidence of your theory or your hypothesis. How does priming, does it differ from expectation theory? Some of the 
things like placebo effect and some of those aspects that are coming out and that kind of getting a resurgence, in, in my opinion. Is, yeah. is it different? Is it correlated? Is it where does that fit into all of this? Well, I wouldn't touch it because I, I would say these are conscious expectations. And so, you okay. know, I, I think it's along the lines of uh, Kahneman Tversky, you know, when they would frame a problem a certain way. Yeah. And so have you spin it and, and frame it in a certain way and you get different results? This is your conscious mind interpreting and stuff. And it's something that you're aware of doing and, and you mean to do and all that. So it's a very intentional, deliberate kind of effortful thought. And since prime, I wouldn't call it, I mean, that's very important research. And as, as Kahneman's book shows, I mean, my God, it's very influential. It's just, I wouldn't call it priming because okay. priming is passive, right? Priming is just your incidental effects of uh, everyday experiences. And again, priming is not, it does not have to be subliminal because it's not the, the awareness of the event that's the key issue here. It's the awareness of the effect of the event, your awareness of the influence or consequence of that event on what you do afterwards. And that's what's the important part of awareness. How does that work with placebo effect? So again, as I'm thinking about a placebo effect, right, I'm taking a pill. I don't know if it's uh, active or non-active, but just the fact of taking the pill. So that's a conscious fact. Right. But is there a, a subconscious element that this is going to help me and that, that how that works? Is it? I, you know, I, I've seen this recent stuff that the power of placebo effects is really awesome. And I, I haven't kept up with that literature okay. uh, yeah. myself. So, but but it, it does seem to be a fairly impressive power of mind over body, which is incredible. And I'm just, I respect all of that. And I think that's great <laughs> stuff. I just, it's not priming because you're, you're given uh, ideas. Uh, there's so many things that are happening here. The power of imagination. I've been reading some old memory research, and, and they, they found that uh, neurally, in neuroscience, that when you imagine a prior exposure, you're shown something, and then you're shown it again, and different things happen uh, in, neuro, in neuroscience in your, in your brain. The second time something is presented than the first. If you imagine or remember the first time it was presented, instead of being shown actually the thing the second time, you get the same effects. And that's where we're talking. We're talking about the power of imagination, the power of what's going on in your mind as far as you're construing and imagining what's going on in your body when you take the placebo is the same as the actual experience. There's something really important there, right? And, and that's, that's where I think that's going. That's not priming, but it's like the power of imagination. I wanted to get, so going back to this Kahneman and Tversky question about framing, can you expand on this idea of why framing is not priming? Well, maybe, is there an example that you could give to, to help explain that? Oh, sure. When, 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 they, when they frame a problem, uh, you're reading that and you're, the pragmatics of communication and all the Gricean pragmatics are that you are assuming that what they're telling you is important to what you're deciding on and choosing. And so you say, oh, okay, you're telling me that. That must be, okay, Linda's a librarian and, uh, or Linda is whatever. Uh, and so that's, that you're telling me this. Uh, well, that must be important to what comes next. Uh, and so you're actively using that information uh, in these experimental settings for the, these pragmatics, if nothing else. And then it affects your judgment and all that. You're framing this person, you're framing the situation and, and as a loss or a gain and all that. And it's very active, right? You're sort of induced to take a certain kind of goal 
a certain kind of uh, frame or set to work on the information. Gain and loss are different goals. They're different motivations. Mm-hmm. It's not really approach and avoidance, but it's it's going for something or protecting what you've got. These are different motivational orientations. So you give people different goals. They do different things with the information. But that's still an active motivational goal pursuit effect and not, not at all a passive priming one. You certainly can activate goals through priming. But that's not what they do in their studies. They tell people the information, and it's in the context of a task and an experiment, and people are trying to do what the experimenter tells them to do, right? So it's all very active and very deliberate. Looking back at the priming research that you talked about, and you mentioned William James already and some of the others, but if I was to go back in the history of priming, where did it start? What are some of the seminal kind of, when did it start really gaining speed, and and what are some of the seminal research um, papers yeah. in there. Well, I, I would say, again, the earliest I've really found something related is William James again. And he has this, uh, the summation of sensation or the summation of experience. And Bergson says the same kind of thing. But James talks about how uh, someone, you know, there's there are people sort of asking for money on the sidewalk, like a, a big city or something. And you go past one, you go past another. And James actually gives this example, but you give money to the sixth one, the last one. And why is that? Because the tendency has been increased every time along the way till finally it's strong enough that it sums over time so that the the tendency becomes strong enough to actually cause you to actually behave that way at the end. My example is road rage, you know, where someone cuts you off. Someone cuts you off again, you get madder and madder. The last guy, you really are furious. It's as if it's the same person doing it six times. It's not. It's the last person did the same thing the first person did. But you're so mad at the last one, not the first one. So what's happening is it's like, just like James said, with the summation of experience, very passive in James' idea that these things get more and more and more active. That's like priming because it's the activation from the first is added, 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 and getting more and more active to where it exceeds the threshold. But in psychology, here's where priming started. It started in experimental or cognitive psychology. It started in verbal learning because I traced this back because people were saying, you know, criticizing back about 10 years ago, saying, well, these these uh, kind of uh, reaction time, uh, little fast kind of uh, prime target uh, pairs where something was on for a quarter of a second, something came right afterwards and it affected your response to the second, like bing, bing, things like that. Well, this effect lasts like a couple hundred milliseconds. How can you have priming uh, and say it lasts for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes like that? That's ridiculous. It can't possibly last that long. The problem is that that was one use of the word priming, Meyer and Shavanavelt in these studies in the 1970s, right? But that's not where priming came from in social psychology. There was a whole different area of, called priming in verbal learning, where people would be given words in a first kind of uh, experiment. And then in a second experiment, they were found to use those same words as free responses when they were given things to respond to an associative kind of, you know, free response test. And people were writing this like letters to the American psychologist saying, I got this weird effect. You know, they used the words from the first task and the second task. In other words, it wasn't just a a chronic associative memory that was operating. It was the recent use of the information in the previous experiment. And they were writing these, I don't know what's going on here. Kofer, Charles Kofer, I have his book here somewhere. Seagull, Kofer, people like that started doing studies in the 60s 
where they gave people uh, stuff in the first uh, words and stuff in the first and then showed that uh, and then asked them to recall them and showed that words they could not explicitly recall from the first task were more likely to be used in free associations in the second. In other words, folks, implicit memory. This was the birth of implicit memory, where you don't have explicit memory for the item, but it has an effect on your behavior. This is what Dan Schachter and everyone started talking about in the 1980s with amnesics who, who had no idea what you're talking about because they have no memory for what you just did, yet they showed the same effects, priming effects of what had just happened on their responses as people who are not amnesic. In other words, explicit memory systems are not needed for these effects. Implicit memory is. So that's what priming is. It's an implicit memory effect. It's an effect of an experience that you maybe not even consciously or explicitly can recall on your subsequent responses and behavior. And when asked about it, you have no idea what they're talking about when you say this event, this thing that happened earlier affected you because it's not, it's an implicit memory effect. And we, uh, I think all agree that I think there's a strong consensus that there is such a thing as implicit memory. In fact, there's many, many forms of implicit memory. There's some beautiful reviews of that literature now in the last 10 years. Paul Reber, for example, at Northwestern, this beautiful reviews of all the different, Dan Schachter also. There's all these different forms of implicit memory. Why? Because every single mental process and single cognitive process has a memory system of its own. The only one that's, that seems to be different is explicit memory. And if you have damage to one part of the brain, I forget which part it is, if you have damage to that part, then you don't have any explicit memory, but all of your implicit memory is still intact. Still multiple, multiple implicit memories. All of those are priming effect potentials. Very interesting. No one seems to have a problem with implicit memory, and that's <laughs> all it is. And it, it grew. So what happened was Tori Higgins, who was at Columbia working with Jan Ellen Huttenlocker, who was a psycholinguistic expert, his degree at Columbia was in psycholinguistics with Huttenlocker, and they have a psych review on this. He knew all about the verbal learning studies from the 1960s. That was his area. So he's, he sets up a social psychology version where people are exposed to words like independent, aloof, selfish, uh, helpful, these different trait words in a learning study and shows that they affect people's impressions and interpretations of somebody in the second study. He basically took exactly the same paradigm as verbal learning from the 1960s and used it with social stimuli to show that these things, and people could not remember the first, uh, the first words. People said, well, maybe they still remembered. So what, what Paula Pietromonico and I did was show them subliminally. Say there's no way they can remember, they can even see them, and yet we still get the priming effects. So all we were trying to do is show that Higgins' results in 1977 weren't because of demand or because they, they explicitly remembered anything. They didn't even see them in the first place. They were shown paraphobially, which actually is critical here because that's not subliminal. Paraphobial is how we read. We see things coming up in, in the line of words and paraphobially it gets a, a process in the course of intentional conscious reading. And so it's not really subliminal. It's paraphobial but it's, it's uh, in the fringe, periphery. And I can get into the periphery. Uh, you know, it, it affects on the periphery get through attention, affect us more than things in our central focus. And that's, there's attention research on that. It's like we can't, can't help but wonder what's going on out there in that periphery. It's so interesting to us. And we actually pay more attention and more influence by things in the periphery than cues right in our fovea. And that's, that's the new attention research coming out. Anyway, so I would say this, priming is not this, they categorized it as this uh, spreading activation, Meyer Shavanaville kind of paradigm, and it wasn't. It was always in the verbal learning tradition. You probably know Jeff Sherman, 
out in California who wrote uh, this wonderful uh, article in uh, Psychological Inquiry, a journal that Will Cunningham edits, and there were a lot of commentaries to it. And basically, Jeff Sherman was saying, priming studies in social psychology are the same as priming studies elsewhere, and no one has any problem with those in behavioral economics, uh, Elke Weber, Ernst Fair, and so forth and so on. Why is there a problem with the ones in social? And it comes down to, you know, basically because they're social psychology and they're really the same studies and everything else, but no one seems to gripe about the other ones. I wrote a commentary to Jeff's Target article that came out last year, basically saying what I just did about the history of priming in, in verbal learning and uh, uh, Kofer and Siegel and others in the 1960s, which became uh, implicit memory in the 1980s with Schachter and, and Weisskrantz and others. I'm kind of curious about who influenced you, who inspired you? To, to get into this this work, obviously this the, this rich platform of priming starting to, to come about as you're an undergrad and grad school. But what point do you sort of get the bug, and what what was it that was the catalyst? Yeah, I don't know if there's any particular thing. Maybe I'll find out when I hear what I say here to answer what comes out. I always wanted to be in psychology since I was eight years old. I don't know why. Maybe to figure out my, my you know everyone's got their crazy family and. I, I remember having memories in our kitchen of our house and, and really knowing when I was eight or nine years old that I wanted to be in psychology. I, in high school, took the psychology class, but read, you know, B.F. Skinner and all these, you know, bestsellers which were coming out around then uh, in Time magazine. It was, you know, a big deal about free will and it was existential and, you know, all these kinds of important issues. And the 60s were like a lot about, you know, thinking about these important issues and existential uh, concerns and all that. There was also a renewed interest in consciousness because people were sort of throwing out, throwing over the behaviorism and B.F. Skinner's uh, and starting to study the mind. So the cognitive revolution was happening. And I hit that when I went to college in 1973. It's like almost 50 years ago now. And uh, the people there were you know, really excited in psychology about cognitive psychology and the cognitive revolution and, and, and looking at things that were they were prohibited from studying you know, for the last 50 years. And, and there was just enthusiasm and excitement. And also, you know, the 60s was about consciousness raising and using drugs to see what would happen to your mind and, you know, exploring things. It wasn't just taking drugs just to take drugs. It was really to try different things to blow your mind, you know, to find out, you know, uh, could you have different kinds of um, perceptual experiences, right? The doors, right? The doors are named after the Huxley book. Yeah. Right. Uh, the doors of perception. That was that was the idea of the sort of the zeitgeist. Right. So that was heady and, and learning about it. So that was great. And I went to graduate school for all the wrong reasons. So I got really lucky. I, I wrote about this. Be, we had one of these books that came out when people like old geezers like me, you know, go back to their uh, roots and say, why did you do and tell you tell the history? I didn't know what kind of psychology I wanted to go into. I was in an honors seminar with 12 other people at Illinois, and uh, they, they all wanted to be clinicians. They all wanted to go back to Chicago and, uh, and open, uh, um, put a shingle out and uh, make money. And that's all they wanted to do. They wanted to have a private practice and make money as, as a therapist. And I was like, damn it. You know, I want to study psychology. I want to be a psychologist. I don't want to do it for money. I do it because I'm, you know, idealistic. And I was all idealistic. So I walked around the psychology building at Illinois and any fact, any door that was open, I went to the faculty and I asked them, I'm going to show these guys, right? I'm going to ask them. I asked them the same questions. What kind of psychology makes the least amount of money? And they all went, social psychology. And I said, that's it for me, social <laughs> psychology, because then no one can say I'm doing this for the money. So this is the most stupid reason for going into a career in like the history of the world. 
go around and ask what makes the least amount of money. And that's the reason you do it. So, okay, I'm going to go into social psychology. And I was all proud about being a social psychologist because I was going to get paid the least of anybody in the, in the <laughs> faculty. And that's what I did. So I applied to the best social psychology programs. I got in at Yale. I got in at Michigan. I got in Northwestern, places like that. And um, it came down to Yale or Michigan. And I think I would have been happy either place, knowing now as I do about who was at Yale and uh, at the time. And uh, I went to Michigan, Michigan at the time, and still is, you know, probably one of the top social psychology programs, had a great history, research, research center for group dynamics, the Kurt Lewin, all, all the people at Michigan. It had an incredible history. I worked with Bob Zients. Bob Zients was doing birth order stuff, and it was really boring. But I could program computers, and I programmed his computers for two years. I didn't really like it. And then I got the uh, ability to go away for a year uh, at Utah, and my partner was was going to law school there. And I, they, Pat Gurren, who's still alive and still alive and kicking and uh, at Michigan, was the director of the program. And she gave me a fellowship, uh, you know, a, a to support me for a year where all I had to do was, was read and think. And, and, and it was the opportunity. She believed in me and, and she gave me this opportunity that year in Utah in Salt Lake city. I read and read and read and read and read what I really was interested in and wrote basically my dissertation and my third year. And it was all about Posner and Snyder. It was all about Schiffer and Schneider. It was all about attention and automaticity. And it was all about uh, the kinds of uh, effects that are, you know, what, what, what does consciousness do? What are the other kinds of things besides conscious dual process theories and things like that? And designed my experiments, prepared all my stimulus materials, came back, and everyone there thought they were never going to see me again. When I went to Utah, I was never going to come back. And I always meant to come back. I came back, ran my studies, finished my fourth year, and went to NYU when I was 25. And started and so forth and so on. But what really happened was the year Pat Gurin gave me to go to to go to Utah and work with an experimental psychologist there who was doing research on divided attention and, and dichotic listening and working in helping in his lab, William Johnston at the University of, of Utah. That was the big break and learning so much from him and reading and reading and reading and reading, which is what I'm doing now. I mean, this is what I love to do. I love to read everybody else's stuff and try to make sense and, and synthesize and, and analyze and put it all together, which is what I'm having so much fun with on this book project right now. But that's really where things happen. And this is for sure guaranteed the last thing I'm going to say on this topic. But back then, the cognitive revolution was so heady. And everyone was so excited about studying consciousness that they thought everything was conscious. Everything was caused by conscious processing. And it was like given a carte blanche, a, a free pass, that everything you did was always conscious 24-7, always intentional. It was this new thing that they, a new toy, a new car, you know, that they could ride. And it was like involved with everything, everyone's model. And I was like, you know, I read Skinner and I read this other stuff. And it wasn't like he was totally wrong. I mean, it was like, okay. He was wrong, but he wasn't totally wrong. So really, consciousness is for everything? And that didn't seem to fit the little I knew about evolution, and it didn't seem to fit with how other animals are able to do a whole lot of stuff with, without it. And so I started saying, look, let's just not assume this without testing it. Let's start testing it. Mm -hmm. And let's start doing experiments to see what can be done without consciousness. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe consciousness is necessary for everything. But when we started doing the studies and taking little baby steps, little baby steps through the 80s and 90s, we started finding there's a lot of things that happen without consciousness. And it, what that's helped 
it comes to come to today is we know a lot more now about what it really is for. And, and the, 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 the big question, what is consciousness for? Why do we have it? Why did it evolve? And it's a, been a puzzle. If you read all these great thinkers and writers, Max Vellman's, for example, all these wonderful books, they really don't have an answer yet. They don't have an answer. Max Vellman sort of throws his hands up in the air and says it's to make things real. Mm. And I understand what he's saying. I don't mean to make fun of it because I understand that in social psychology, we know that when people think about what they would do, like in Milgram experiment or other experiments, they're usually, they're often wrong. When they're put in the actual situation, they do something very different. And so there's something about the actual experience, which is more realistic, right? Real, that's what, this was Vellman's. And so I understand that. I think that Vellman's is right, but it's still, that's not, not yet the answer about what consciousness is for. And I think that's where I am now. So that, I, I don't know what's going to happen with priming. I can tell you what, what we're trying to do. Gary Latham and I have projects involved where we're trying to use priming to help people in various ways. And especially our projects now are, have, to, have to do with safety of going into very unsafe occupations and seeing if there's something we can do with priming, because to get all the conscious exhortations to be safe all the time in these dangerous uh, occupations. And we're trying to see if there's a way we can aid or help and, and make people maybe more safe using priming. And so we're trying to use it for good, for social good, sort of like nudges and budges, right? That's the technology or the applied aspect of it. But uh, as far as my interest, my interest is trying to understand the basis of all these influences on us that come from our conscious experiences and consciousness is needed for them, but we don't, we're not aware of them. John, with that, can you tell a little bit, because I know there's been some meta analysis recently around priming and, and quickly, can you just kind of talk through what that has said? Because I kind of, again, you've talked a little bit about the, the replication crisis and some of the aspects that have gone on and some of the controversies around um, priming, but really when you talk about what you're doing and some of the, the meta research that's coming out recently, again, to your point, it's not the be all end all, but it fits within this larger piece. So yeah, the, the main, the main meta analyses, and there's a third one that's hopefully going to be published soon, but I'm it's sort of confidential. I can't, I'm not uh, the author on it or anything, but I, I, it's confidential document right now. But, um, uh, Dolores Albarazin, who's now at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, is uh, was the lead uh, on the uh, the 2016 Psych Bulletin one with 350 studies, and there's another one by um, Zhao Chen, who is a graduate student of Gary Latham, uh, now at the University of Nova Scotia, I believe, and uh, a bunch of uh, uh, Latham's former students and colleagues, and that came out in Applied Psychology. So both of them show the priming effects are robust and real across hundreds of studies. The Alvarazin one was a project begun when all the controversy started around 2011, 2012, that uh, this was a, a train wreck coming, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and Dolores just said, well, let's look at the evidence. And so she and her colleagues and students uh, carefully asked for people and solicited all the file drawer, all the unpublished studies, all the studies anyone had at, the, at that moment and all the social media. So look, you know, you guys are saying this stuff, there's all these file drawers full of unpublished studies and, and the file drawer effect and all that kind of thing. Well, send them to us, please. And we're going to include them in the meta-analysis. And so she spent six months to a year soliciting all the studies, including the published ones, this, that anyone had ever done. 
And, you know, people at the time were saying there's going to be this avalanche of unpublished work that's going to come out and show this is not an effect. Okay. I held my breath for four years before that paper was published in 2016. I don't know how I survived without oxygen for four years, but I held my breath for four years. I did not know what was going to be the outcome. And all I knew was it's Dolores Alboracine. And whatever she concludes, I have to believe it. And she could conclude at the end of it, there's no priming effect. And I would say, damn it, but, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, and but that's the way it is. And I would be, you know, upset, but that would be, I would accept it, right? Because it's a meta-analysis. It's not people who are replicating who may or may not have a reason for not finding. You know, people get, get things published when they don't replicate now, just like they used to get published when they, when they did find them a positive effect. So, you know, here's somebody who's a, a, a trusted, honest broker who has been given um, uh, editorships in the major journals has going to be a major editor coming up soon. I don't know if it's been announced yet, uh, been a major journal and a uh, very, very expert in meta-analysis and, uh, uh, and it came out and she sent me a copy and I'm like, oh my God. And I was very nervous about opening it and reading it, but uh, they found the effect reliably, robustly over 350 studies. And these are verbal primes only, not even pictures or behaviors or contagion, it's verbal primes only, and it's for goals. So the, the, yeah. the two hard things, the things that are hardest for people to believe are the verbal effects on behavior, but also these are the motivational effects, which a lot of people in the past said, I can believe behavior. I can believe uh, impression formation. I don't know about you can activate goals because that really strikes at free will, right? If you can manipulate people's goals without their realizing it, 350 studies about verbal priming of goals and a fairly large effect size of 0.5, 0.6 or something like that. I may not be getting that number right, but uh, it, the effect goes in is much stronger for goals that, that are important to the person. And that's yeah. also key because when you look at the Chen et al. one with Latham, they also find that in real organizations like uh, uh, businesses and telemarketing firms or consumer uh, service firms and all the different ones that they study, the effects are there on performance and on cooperation and all the different dependent measures uh, they show in real life corporations. But the, the primes are put in the CEO's e Monday morning email to his staff. I mean, they, they put these things in real life and these people do not know they're being studied. Their performance increases. They raise more money for charity. All those good things. The meta-analysis shows that's a reliable, robust effect. It's stronger in the field than it is in the lab. And that's because these are real goals in people's real lives. And when they're, the same thing Alvarazin concluded as well, the more important the goal, the more primable it is. When you talk about like how this research is, is coming in, and one of the things I know that you've talked about your book, and your book is going to be about research and various different things. So what makes good research? I mean, what is the, what's the underlying piece? Because again, I think we've talked about this a little bit too off, off camera here, as we say, uh, that, you know, sometimes it's the, the communication of that research that gets confusing in various the different aspects of it. But, and, and I think people have a hard time in discerning good research from just kind of okay research from bad research. Yeah. You know, speaking of Dolores Alborosin, she actually has a project at Penn and it, it, it is very much about uh, science communication. You know, and, and these days, a lot of people say this is science and it's bogus science and it's, uh, mm. you know, and how do people tell, you know, people want scientific information, but how do people tell the good science from the bad, especially when there's agendas out there pushing certain kinds of 
findings over others. You know, when the when the pandemic started, someone got a hold of a Johns Hopkins study that said, uh, you know, the flu was worse than than COVID. And it was all over the place. Even school boards were saying there's no reason for us to close schools. And this is in in May and June of, of 2020, because this Johns Hopkins study showed that it's not as bad as the flu. I mean, you know, because of Johns Hopkins study, right? So the imprimatur of a, a famous medical school, a famous university. And so this is really a problem, uh, how people tell good science from bad science. And, you know, it gets into what I was mentioning off camera, whatever you want to call it. And that is the importance of science journalism has never been. Psychology is one thing, but the medical part, you know, and, and the uh, the safety part and things like that, it's never been more important. And I, I also have always... Uh, thought it was important in psychology uh, for various reasons. But um, the problem with social psychology is, and always has been, that we're dealing with a lot of times with social issues. And we're dealing with things that there are political agendas about. And there are issues um, and and ideologies about free will and about uh, independence and about whatever that that are at play. And the effect of, for example, of of a conservative versus liberal kinds of mindsets, and maybe one is good and the other is not so good. You know, any kind of thing like that is is uh, is going to be a political bomb. You know, a, yeah. a, a bomb being tossed back and forth. And so there's agendas about what it is that that the science should show, and and tendencies to try to show one or the other. That's always going to be true with social psychology. You know, the, the people who don't like the idea that there's there's racism and want to pretend there's not, we're going to say, oh, you know, we're we're, treat, we're we're teaching critical race theory in our schools and there's no such thing and and it's uh, you know biased against white people. I get this here, you know, we get this here in our own Connecticut uh, school district. So you know, of course, that's always going to be uh, the case. But you know, with other science too, uh, it's it's uh, you know the, the communication of it in an accurate way. Is so important. I, I, you know, think this is what I want to say to you guys. I'll say it on camera. You know that this is the value of your of your podcast because you guys are the honest brokers, and you guys are really interested in the science and really interested in getting at all sides and trying to present, you know, a very accurate but also um, broad perspective on on whatever the issue, the issue you're talking about. And and I just wish there were more of you. I know you don't want the competition, but uh, you know we need more of you guys. I mean, we really do. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. No, I really mean that. I, yeah, I'm just saying this to you guys. No, I really, really I say it to everybody that is a shortage of this, especially. And and uh, as Dolores shows, you know, we really need this medium between people and 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 the scientific uh, establishment or, or, or research articles and so forth. We really need yeah. more of that. I think to that point, when when we look at research articles and some of the stuff that Tim and I are trying to do, obviously we're we're doing groove tracks, which are taking research articles that. We find that, you know, the vast majority of the audience out there outside of researchers never, ever read. They might hear about them, but they hear about it from like, this is the effect that was found or not found or the big overarching topic, but they don't understand like, oh, this was done with 23 people. And so it has a small N and it has this and, and, and what are the other elements of that? Or this is a this was a, you know, done here. And then they they did, you know, study number two and study number three to show it in the lab. And so we're trying to get a deeper dive into some of this stuff because, sure. A, if you understand the, the mechanics behind it and some of the elements that go into this, I think you're going to be better informed mm-hmm. to be able to make a decision on, yeah, is this good? How, how far can I generalize this? Which is the other piece right. that I find really 
journalism, not just science journalism, but when things get into the popular press, all of a sudden a small impact in this narrow area gets blown into, well, this means the change for the entire globe on everything that goes on. And I think that's a big piece with the journalism that follows this. Yeah. And it goes up the food chain. A larger outlet is going to see the smaller ones and then it goes up and up and up. That's what happened with the train wreck email with Kahneman in 2012, went all the way up into nature. Then from nature, it went to The Economist and The Economist cover story in in October 2012. And so it just went up and up and up and up. Um, So the more distant you are and higher up and farther away from the original stuff, the less you really know what the real story is. But then it's broadcasted billions of people around the world. And it has great, great power and an effect on public opinion. Yeah, I heard so, uh, David, David Spiegelhofer, the great uh, British statistician, was talking recently about how uh, some there was a big headline that said most people who have died in the last two years were vaccinated. And it's like, well, if you just sit and think about it for just a second, who's the greatest population of people that die? Well, they're older than 70. By the yeah. way, what's the greatest population of people who have been vaccinated? Over 70. So right. if, of course, there's a correlation between the two, but it's not causation. Right. And, and right. so so we get caught in this, this right. spin. You know, you kind of you were talking about sort of the moral aspects of this and the belief aspects of it. And so the social psychology ends up getting manipulated, you know, just like the stati- just the, the actual data gets manipulated. Right, right. You know, uh, I have to tell Roy Baumeister wrote an article about um, that I thought was hilarious, but it's so true a while ago about um, how sober driving is the biggest cause of, uh, of accidents because 99% of all accidents are caused by people who weren't drinking. 99% of all accidents are caused by sober drivers. They're definitely sober. Being sober when you're driving is a bad thing because it's causing all these accidents. Very few are caused by drunk drivers. And there it is. There's the data. True. That's it. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. He went on a very serious article, though, pointing out that how we really have to do something about this problem. Thank yeah. goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. John, we always have to leave with talking a little bit about music. And we have loved our conversations about Led Zeppelin. But, but I'm curious, you know, as you've been writing the book, what have you been listening to? Has your playlist changed at all? I've got this. I've got this. Uh, she's 16 now, but my daughter's always been you know, uh, listening to all kinds of music. And, and, and the funny thing is if you, if she turns on her, you know, speaker and stuff, she's listening to the big bands of the forties and fifties. She's listened to everything. She's listened to, you know, world music. She's, she just knows all the independent this and she's on Spotify and she's, she's incredibly knowledgeable about music. She started I started her on ACDC when she was two and she <laughs> would get in from the preschool in the car and, and, and she'd sit in her seat in the back and she'd go, bong. And so I had to play Hell's Bell. <laughs> bong. So I had to play bong. She started there and, and, but she's ever since just been so, so what she does is she gives me these Spotify playlists. And so I know I'm a big fan of the psychedelic uh, porn crumpets, for example, uh, and and Acid Dad and Orb, uh, and and I go on and on. My playlist is all this kind of stuff and independent stuff from like the last ten, and it's awesome. I actually have quotes from all these uh, different songs, so I'm listening. I'm down the treadmill listening to this music, and oh my god, these lyrics! You know, and I I, I use Siri to to send myself an email with these lyrics so that. They're there the next morning, but I'm listening to all this stuff and it's, it's so good. I mean, 
you know, I got off music in the 1980s because uh, I was in New York and all I could get was like the New York radio and New York radio was lowest common denominator. They just played, you know, AM kind of dumb stuff because they didn't need to play. They didn't need a narrow cast. They needed to have lowest common denominator because so many people would hear and their advertising was, you know, so New York radio in the 80s was a, abysmal and I just stopped listening. I picked it up with Nirvana. I picked it up with um, Pearl Jam and uh, and groups like that in the '90s. And but my daughter has really got me going um, on the last ten years. And it's just, I mean, th- th- this music is so good. I mean, I'm sorry. And the name, uh, the psychedelic okay. porn crumpets, is ridiculous. It's fantastic. Their, their yeah. music is heart. There's just some songs that are heartbreaking. They're so beautiful. And Acid Dad, I love Acid Dad. And I don't know why she sends me Acid Dad all the time, but, you know. <laughs> you know oh, there's so much. And I know I'm forgetting things that are so, they're, they're just, it's such good stuff. If you've got a Spotify it's, list, will you send it to us so we can share it with listeners? Yeah, it's got everything in the world. It's got old stuff too. It's got The Who. I mean, it's got a little bit of Zeppelin, but yeah. I would, if I know, if I can figure out, can you do that on, it's on my phone. So how do I do that? We'll, can we'll I, have, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll figure okay. it out. Yeah, okay. We'll get instructions. If, I, if, if, if there's you. a way I can do this by text. You know, <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, you're unfortunately, when it, well, when it comes to Spotify, I am, I, I don't know anything about it because I have moral objections to I'd it. I'd love to do it. I just don't know how to get it to you, but um, we'll figure it out. So, yeah. Oh, dead pirates, dead pirates, everybody, dead pirates. <laughs> I love it. I, oh, I, man. I love it. Yeah. It is amazing, though, to have a 16 year old kid in the house because the music that you get exposed to is not the music that you would choose to necessarily listen to. And you go, oh, my God. My my son, who's sixteen, is listening to shanty songs. I mean, all these yeah. sea shanty songs that, yeah. and then it gets into some Irish kind of elements yeah. that are going. And I'm like, going, what? This is cool music coming from his room. I don't even know what it is, but man, it sounds that awesome. is so neat. See what I mean? That they, they are exposed to it, so they can actually pick whatever they want, and it may not be like the the trendy thing you think teenagers are into, like you know, the I don't know. What would it be, you know, rock or hip hop or something? But I would tell you something. I have a mother. My mother's still around. My mother's 95. My mother goes to a mall. My my sister takes her in the in a wheelchair, goes to a mall to sing sea shanties. They have a club. They no sing. Way. I, and my mother's 100% Irish. And she sings sea. I can't even say this. She sings sea <laughs> shanties. At the mall, and it's say that five times fast. Yeah, son is is like into sea shanties. This might be listening to your mom. You know, maybe they recorded it somewhere, and maybe he's he's downloaded that. Because Lord knows, with with YouTube and everything else, that it, it is amazing what is out there. So yeah, yeah, um, and that's uh, oh god. If you're into music, I mean, it's just it's so nice now. I mean, yeah. you can just and and the fact that the sea shanties in your in your case and big bands. I mean, I grew up, my, my local radio station in Illinois, that's all you play, like, you know, Glenn Miller and the Big Ben and right. Les Brown and his band of renown and whatever, like Benny Goodman. And like, oh my God, it made me sick. I mean, I was yeah. so sick of it because <laughs> it's all we had, you know, uh, yeah. until I finally discovered Chicago, like WLS and Chicago radio. But um, my God. My, my 12-year-old listens to Broadways. I mean, that's yeah. that's what, I mean, we, we ride in the car and I have to listen to, you know, you know, Six and Beetlejuice, the musical and, yeah. you know, 
Heather's yeah. has a musical. I, I don't know if you guys even look at any of the. Anyway, it's it is kind of amazing. This is another thing what, that she was into. She was into Hades Town like five years ago. That yeah. thing took ten years to it finally got to Broadway. Right, and she had the soundtrack of it like from Europe and other places way before it even came to Broadway. Then it came to Broadway. We were there before the pandemic, right? But we were there before it won the uh, Tony, and it was. Just awesome, yeah. the original cast and all that. But she was listening to the soundtrack for three or four years. And she, when it came to Broadway, she had to go. And it was her first uh, Broadway show. And it was like, because she had the internet, because she could listen to this Broadway music uh, on, on shows that weren't even on Broadway yet. <laughs> God, that's Uh-oh. fantastic. It's, it's, it's great. Well, good luck. Good luck to your son. Thank I mean, you. Thank isn't that you. nice, yeah. though, that they can do this for us? Because... It just woke up my my longtime interest in music, which was very dormant. It's it's been wonderful. That's good to hear. Thank you so much again. Always a pleasure having you on. Always insightful. I have a number of a researchers that I'm going to have to go and look up that you just quoted, and then a whole bunch of music. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. It's always a pleasure, and uh, let's do it again soon. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with John, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our GWT brains, Tim. Oh, GWT. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna think about that one. We're gonna talk about GWT. We're gonna talk about GWT. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Global workplace workspace theory, by the way. That's Oh man, you for. gave away. Oh, you're not supposed to give that away. It's supposed to be like soaking in their unconscious as we are talking about this. You know, it's like, what are those initials? I know they talked about global, you know, workspace uh, theory, but what? Did, yeah, I didn't put those. What's you know. GWT? GWT. <laughs> all right, all right. We're, <laughs> okay. We, so where are we gonna start? Yeah. Let's start with this, this idea. So a John is just a, the guy is brilliant and, and just like I mean, the, the conversation we had, like, oh my gosh, we could have gone down any one of those rabbit holes for an hour at each time. And we just covered so much ground that I think for the grooving session, we kind of need to pull it back. And I think that the thing that I want to take from this, one of the things is that Look, priming has gotten a bad rap, um, but the priming effect is real. Yeah. Okay. So l- l- that's that's a great place to start. Okay. So why has priming gotten a bad rap? So was, I mean, John talked about this. He said, it, "Look, it's the low hanging fruit. When people are doing replication studies, you know, it's an easy thing to do. It had gotten highly publicized. So hey, let's let's take a look at this. And the idea that." Hey, in the old days, <laughs> 15 years ago, it was crazy. But the, yeah. the, the way that studies were done were different. They, the, the power, uh, they had low power, smaller sample size. And I think the bigger piece, and I think, John, I'm, I'm maybe extrapolating a little bit out from what he said, is that the insights that, we, that were found in those studies were really pretty particular. And Mm -hmm. yet we tended to generalize those findings out when they should have been more nuanced. So in other words, it's like, oh, we can use priming to do all these fantastic things. And no, 
No, what the study said is in this situation, in this context, in this uh, arena, this was shown to have an impact. And um, yeah, that was that was my take. Yeah, it it, it may sound like rationalizing, but I, I really like the way we talked about it. And it gets me thinking about how each of these observations can be like a star in a constellation. So we could discover the star. We may not really know what the constellation looks mm-hmm. like yet you know, putting things together so much and so quickly that we might not really see the shape of the constellation yet. Maybe we do. Yeah, maybe we do. But Well, and again, it comes, it comes down to, I mean, we we know from, I mean, the, the original priming research, you know, that John talked about, the, those, the word, it was, a you know, as language and various different things. And you can prime people to recall things more often, even if they don't remember they had those words. And variety of other factors that are going on in those from the 60s and 70s. And those aren't controversial at all. Those have been replicated over and over and over again. It's just when we started getting more into some of the behavioral pieces of this. And this is the part where I think, you know, the the meta-analysis that he talked about were coming in. Yeah, Dolores Alvarez's work that that she and colleagues spent four years collecting and analyzing, what was it, 350 studies? Yeah, I think uh, so. or, or, Or more? That was a huge amount of work. And, and, and John noted, uh, I, I really love the way he, he talked about um, Dolores and her collaborators as, as trusted, honest brokers of the project. Like, like they didn't have a, you know, a dog in the fight, basically. They were just out to put all of this together. And, and what they found was very reliable and very robust. And, that, and especially how, how strong uh, verbal primes for goals came out to be. And I thought that that was pretty cool, given uh, especially the, the work that you and I have done on on goals and motivation, that that was, that was pretty cool, that, that priming for goals happens to be a particularly strong effect. And so that's, that's kind of the, the proof in the pudding, you know, where you've got lots and lots of studies, both published and unpublished, put together, ground up in the hopper to, to try to come up with, does this really hold water or not? Is this stuff really saying what we think it's saying? And and the answer is a very reliable and robust yes. Ground up, Priming ground up in a- the hopper. <laughs> okay. I like that. I like it. Well, and, and, and one thing, I mean, we didn't even talk about, so there was another, so we've obviously had uh, uh, Gary Latham on the show as well. And Gary actually sent me a paper that they just, they, it was published, I think in 2020, which was a, another meta-analysis that he worked on with, I'm going to mispronounce the other people's names, Zhao Chen, Ronald Picolio, and Guy Itzachavov. Um, excuse me, forgive me for my my horrible pronunciation of those names, but it was an enumerative review and meta-analysis of prime goal effect on organizational behavior. And what they found there is that they looked, again, 32 published, 30 unpublished laboratory and field experiments. And what they found is that, yeah, again, there is really good evidence that indicates yeah. that priming, particularly when it's about priming subconscious goals and, and performance inside of field studies, is actually it, it's there. Yeah. So so let's dispense with the bad rap stuff. It exists. Well, uh, well but the bad it, rap is proven. Let's it, it's, it's not discount bad rap because the bad rap, I mean, there were some studies that were pretty poorly designed. There were studies that, that, that were you know, either through fluke or other ways that, you know, they have tried to go back and to replicate and they just can't. And that's real. 
that is real as well. And so we yep. can't just discount that. But what we can't do is say that, all right, we have we have five studies, 10 studies. I don't know how many there are out there that aren't replicate, you know, that they've tried to replicate over and over and they haven't mm-hmm. done that. And but we can't say that because of that, the entirety of the priming research right. has gone is is now suspect. Fair enough. And that, suspect it might be, but that it isn't real. So all right. That's actually a better way of framing it. I also framing, wanted to, to framing. Talk. There we go. That's an interesting <laughs> time that we talked about. Which is and framing is not uh, is not priming. Framing is not so, priming. There we go. So I wanted to talk a little bit about global workspace theory, GWT. We brought that up at the beginning of the grooving session. <sighs> yeah, and you told people what it was. There you go. Well, I, I didn't mean to spoil it, but it's like, is the mystery that worthy of holding on to? <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. And actually, I think it's I think it's really important because John mentions this. It's in passing, like everybody knows. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I don't really know what the hell global workspace theory is. We had to go and research this after the fact. So you want to tell people a little bit about it? Yeah. So, okay. So it's starting in the late 1980s, a researcher named Bernard Bars. Uh, came up with this idea that he uses this theater metaphor. And and John talked about this. The spotlight of selective attention shines a bright light on the stage, you know. So so John kind of went into this, this theater metaphor. But the idea is that there's all these things happening. We've got the spotlight. We've got the thing that we're focused on. We've got the part that is lit up. But there's also all the stuff that's not lit up. And all of the stagehands and the scriptwriters and the scene designers and, and, and the audience like are all unlit, but they're all still in the room. Right. And they're, st- they're, they're, they're all still there at the same and time. And so this is a metaphor for our brain, a metaphor for our mind. Yes. And so this idea yes. that consciousness is this the thing that the spotlight gets on. It's the main actors. It's what's going on on the stage. And everybody is seeing that. And yet it's being influenced by things that are going on in the dark. But the dark is also being influenced by what is being shown in the spotlight, which I think is a fantastic metaphor. Thinking about this global workspace that, all right, picture this big stage and everything and we have a theater and what gets shined on is consciousness and all but there's all these other factors that are playing both both ways right just to to make sure that that listeners are understanding this is about the brain this isn't about the world this is about what's happening in our brains yeah. this is the cognitive functions of conscious and unconsciousness uh kind of co-conspiring to to make things Yeah. And what was interesting is John was talking about priming and he kind of said that this is his new insight into this is that consciousness is necessary to produce the residual priming effects. And he references GWT as a way of thinking about this. So this idea that what is going on in our conscious is influencing those. Um, so what's in the spotlight is influencing those things right. in the dark, but what is in the dark is also influencing things in the spotlight. And so it's not just a, it's not the stuff that is just happening off stage. It, it is a combination of what is going on between what is happening in the spotlight versus what is happening behind the stage or with the audience and they're influencing each other. And that's what he's saying is that, look, 
we need that conscious that we need the spotlight for priming to work the priming has to influence what's going on but it also is influencing what is being done in the in the in the dark so so Maybe it might be worth saying that in the past, the earlier priming research, there was so much focus on the unconscious in the in what was happening with the stagehands and the script writers influencing what was happening in the spotlight. John's saying that we also have to have the spotlight. We have to have what's being focused on in the conscious mind in order to actually make priming yeah, work. Yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. That was like, again, I had to put my, wrap my brain around. I, I'm, I'm having to wrap my brain around a lot of what he talked about in here. Cause it's just like, it's way over my head, way over my pay grade. That's for damn sure. So yeah. but what I found. And so the last thing I, I kind of want to talk about here, Tim, is I was really surprised when I asked him about expectation theory and placebo effect. You asked him about framing, right. And this idea yep. and that he was saying that expectation theory and priming are not the same thing because in my you know novice head as i'm thinking about this i kind of thought that they would operate at least at some underlying element in the same way right that yeah that the expectations are activating the neural networks that are you know, again, in the global uh, workspace theory, like they're working in the the dark, but they're influencing what's going on in the spotlight. And what he's saying yeah. is that it's a different mechanism, that expectation right. is about using imagination, formulating expectations that influence subsequent behaviors, where priming doesn't utilize that imagination part. So all I can say is yes, because... <laughs> Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around this as well. Because when I when when we've talked about Aaliyah Crumb's work on the the mindset over milkshakes yeah. and how she tells people the shake that you're going to drink is a low calorie drink or it uh, the, the the shake that I'm that you're going to drink is a super fatty super rich luxurious shake it's indulgent. indulgent shake and and that our bodies change, you know, I thought, well, isn't that priming? And the answer is no. Well, according to John, it's no. And so this is, this is why we need to get some people on the show um, that are, that that are working in the expectation theory uh, arena, because I think I really want to explore this more. It's, it's the area that I'm super excited about looking at different things. So there's two other things I wanted to to, to cover. Two more. Damn you. Just two more really, really quickly. First is paraphobial. Now, what is paraphobial, Tim? Isn't it that, isn't that fear of sex? No, that's paraphobia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so paraphobial. Which John talks about like, oh, it's this paraphobial Everybody thing knows that we did and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, my God, that's a big word. And I don't understand it. So it to me, it, it's kind of like a peripheral vision sort of thing. It's like that when in, in languages that read from left to right, for instance, when we're reading you know, especially like if we're reading out loud, like we're, our paraphobial, the part of the eye is looking specifically at what we're focused on is the spotlight. But then another part of the eye is actually taking in what the next word is to the right of the word that we're reading. Right. And so this is the paraphobial part. And so there is this something that's happening just outside of our specific field of vision 
that we're fixating on one thing, but we're also taking in information on the next word. Uh, and, and again, like the word that comes to my mind is like peripheral, but that's actually totally different. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately. Oh, wait, I was oh, going, I oh, it's like your peripheral vision, but you're saying, no, that's not it. It's the way, and it has to do with eye movement and other interesting things that are well beyond, again, my pay grade. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to leave that yeah. at that. But yeah, that was a, a big word that John just threw out there. So um, hopefully that just, explains it a little bit for people. Absolutely. And, and lastly, it just made me laugh when, I, when we were going back and rereading the transcripts. Uh, it just makes me so happy when, when I asked John about, so what got you into this? You know, uh, you know what was the catalyst for getting in, into the, the work that he's doing? And he said, I don't know. If there's one thing in particular, maybe I'll find out when I hear what I have, what I say. Like, you know, I'm gonna as soon as I answer, I'll yeah. then I'll tell you what, what yeah. it is. I'll may, maybe I'll find out when I hear what I say here to answer what comes yeah. up. Okay. That was right. what his right. uh, exact quote. Which again, <laughs> I love that. It's great because we're always like, I I don't know what I think until I start saying it out loud or thinking it, and like to have this envy i envy those people who have the precight to understand everything and aren't necessarily formulating their their thoughts in real time <laughs> as they're coming out of their mouth not even not even before but it's like at yeah. the beginning it's what what we do, you know in the beginning when we do the the grooving piece right so for for folks we'll give you a little insight into here you know, we say it's welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with John, have a free phone conversation, talk about whatever else comes into our, and then there's a blank. There's a blank that I fill in, right? And I don't write it out in advance. I always just, whatever comes to my tongue at that point, what comes right. into my you brain, wing I wing it. And oftentimes we have to redo that because I wing it really poorly. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it's this idea that I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth until I get to that point. And then I go, oh, yeah, yeah that was actually insightful. Is that possibly a global workspace theory kind of thing? It could be. It could be. It it's, could be. it's what's going on. It's that combination of conscious and unconscious kind of collaborating to create yeah, this, yeah. this wordplay. There you go. It's perfect. Yeah. All right, listeners, thank you for hanging with us uh, through this lengthy grooving session and this fantastic conversation we had with our old buddy, John Barge. We just, uh, we, we always appreciate John and are always glad to, to have him as a guest on the show. But thanks for listening. Yeah. And, and use the backhand stage people to go out and help you have a grooving week. Mm-hmm.